The Canucks head east after a resounding win over the Calgary Flames last night at Rogers Arena. It is the Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who also does fantastic work covering the team at The Athletic. And, and Canucks who Hour. no one wants to hear from after a 7-1 victory. <laughs> no! It's me! Drancer, it's a Friday. <laughs> they won 7-1 last night. We're going to have some fun. It was a fun night. We're going to have some fun on this it show. It was a fun night. It was an incredibly fun night, right? And uh, before I do the read here, just one of the things I said kind of as a throwaway last uh, yesterday on the show was that I hope the entertainment value of the game lived up to the aesthetic value of the game because of the black skate jerseys. And from a Canucks fan perspective, boy, it sure did that. Because <laughs> what a fun night at Rogers Arena that was. As I like to say after nights like that, a good night out. And, you know, that's great. I, I enjoyed it, honestly. I loved the power play goals. I love I love offense. Like, it was a... Lovely game. And, I mean, there were some Elias Pettersson goals that had me laughing. I, I legitimately did my maniacal laugh after his shorthanded goal because I don't know if you noticed this, but, like, Bo Horvat was working really hard to be an option for him on a 2-1-0. Yeah. Like, working, skating so hard. And as he crossed the blue line, and, you know, this is one of the w- unfortunate advantages that you have to keep in mind as media is, like, the game looks slow to you. But, uh, you know, I had time as he crossed the bl- blue line and watching Horvat just pump his legs and work so hard to be an option for him, which, you know, good teammate, good thing to do. Um, I just was like, there's no way he's passing. There's no way he's passing. And then the shot was just so good. It was just so good. I just, I honestly just started cackling in my seat. I was just like, what a player, what a shot, what a play. Uh, we're going to gush over Elias Patterson because that was a, a signature performance this season for him last night. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. And get your thoughts in as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. What impressed you the most? What was the most fun? What did you, what's your takeaway from last night? Hit us up, 650-650. And, and before we get back into the Elias Pettersson conversation, some of the other things that happened in that 7-1 win last night, you know, you mentioned, hey, that was just fundamentally, to, to be, steal your word, that was a, a good <laughs> night out for fans at Rogers Arena. And, like, this is maybe kind of a stupid observation by me, but just at a basic level, I think sometimes we forget that this whole enterprise is an entertainment product. And and there's just like, it's just good. And again, at the kind of most basic, boring level, it's good for sports teams to like give good, fun memories and nights out to their fans. You 100%. know what I mean? And 100%. I think especially because of the frustration that has built up in this market over the last decade, like anytime that happens for the Canucks, that's a positive. That's good. And especially when it's, you know, uh, snapping one of your most historic rivals' ten game winning streak as they're trying to anoint yeah. themselves cup contenders, can't argue with that. Well, while you're wearing retro jerseys and looking yeah. swell doing it, while your goaltender, uh, who's really emerging as a star, I mean Thatcher Demko is so good, and you know the the amount of thought he puts into his gear. The way he plays, the fact that there's nothing flashy about him, the fact that he talked about the windmills, yeah. and how often do we talk about this that he never he doesn't do it? Yeah, and and I always, I actually, I don't know if you caught the availability post game, but I actually followed up with him and asked him if that's like part of how Clark wants him to play, and he's like, no, I just don't do it. Like it's just not me, um, which was something I'd sort of long wondered about because there is this instruction to carry yourself a certain way when you're a Clark goaltender, a way that lends confidence to your team, but. The way Demko held court post game, how 
you know, forthcoming he was about the thought that went into the jersey, the legacy of Canucks goaltenders that he carries. Um, you know, this guy is this guy is the become a real leader on this team, a real star in this league, and we're watching it happen in front of our eyes. Of our eyes, so really to the point where post game he was, you know, like the man in a way that we haven't seen him be. Certainly not in that setting to this point in his career. It's um, it's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch. He's just so good. He, he was fantastic. And, and you know, it's easy to forget after how the second period and the rest of the game unfolded, he had to make some really big saves Huge in that first saves. period. That, that, they had a ton of breakaways. Like, they had some they had some real opportunities. And then, you know, it's one nothing when he loses his stick and makes that glove robbery on Rasmus Anderson. I mean, that's a huge turning point in the game. Um, things snowball from there for the Canucks. And, you know, I, I think it's important to, like, I'm long view guy. That's who I am. I, I take a really long view of things. I don't change my mind game to game. Like, after the Anaheim game, I had some people in my mentions who were like, Thomas Drance is going to love this. And it's like, I don't love when the team loses. It doesn't change what I think of the team. And I don't hate it when the team wins 7-1. It also doesn't change what I think of the team. If you want to listen to the person who changes their mind or, or is super influenced by the result of one NHL game... You're kind of you're kind of not coming to for me kind of coming to hear my analysis because that's not what I do. I have really strong priors. I take a long time to change my mind, like to the point where the Canucks being, you know, the seventh or fourth best team in the league by point percentage under Bruce Boudreaux, right? In terms of results, doesn't influence my thinking as much as their overall form in terms of where this team is at, right? Like I don't throw out the Travis Green games as not being indicative of who this roster is. Uh, no more than I overreact to the results um, when the way that this club is playing, to me, isn't changed. Like, it's it's a very similar profile. To me, they're still average 5-on-5, five five, which they were under Green and they are under Boudreaux. They, their special teams are a problem. Their power play was great last night, but, you know, it was fortunate, right? That first power play opportunity, which Boudreaux and Miller described as dreadful, um, to uh, quite rightly, quite rightly. Um, aside from that, they were just converting everything, and and they can do that because they have incredible shooters. Uh, I want to see a lot more of Brock Besser on the flank too. Like, give me a season of that before you give me a season of that because he's going to score thirty goals and be a sixty-five goal scorer or a point scorer before before a Besser deal is seriously entertained. Like, come on, come on! At this point, like we need to see more of that. And so there's a lot to like about some of the pieces on this team, about Demko, about Pedersen, about Bo Horvat. Players who, by the way, have occasionally been criticized and dragged in this market, and not by me, right? Um, because they're really good players. They're really good players. The problem still remains, to me, that there's just not enough there. And and you can enjoy a win and have fun and root for the team and want wins and also be realistic about where this club is at and where it needs to go if we're going to have those types of nights in this city where the game matters an awful lot more than, you know, game 53 and the Canucks absolutely needing those two points just to resuscitate their long odds of making the playoffs. Well, just think how, how think how fun that was last night and think about how much better it would have been if that was, you know, for first place in the Pacific Division against the Flames. Right? Or if it happened 50 or if it happened 50 times a year. If 50 times a year you got to tune in and watch a team tune up their opponents. Now, you're not going to win 7-1 50 times a year, but, you know, if you're a team that wins 50 games, not a team that wins 30, right? Like, it's, I mean, that's the team that I want for this city. It's not, 
about rooting against this club or hoping for bad things. It's actually about hoping for good things for the city and just being really clear-eyed about what that takes in hard cap system. Now, in terms of kind of takeaways from last night, because I, I, I kind of said my piece on this earlier in the week where I'm – I'm beyond, like you, I'm kind of beyond the one game means they're going to make the playoffs, one game means tear it down and rebuild, right? Yeah. Like this, we've seen enough now to know that when this team's best players are performing, they have the kind of upside to hang a performance like that last night, and we've also seen that they have the downside to turn in a performance like they did against Anaheim uh, last weekend, right? So the, none of those results within that spectrum are necessarily a big surprise to me, and no individual result really moves the needle for me that much in terms of this year's playoff race. But having said that, I also don't think, I think you can look and maybe uh, use as evidence uh, to strengthen certain arguments, things that happened last night. And I mean, we started out just talking about the performance he put on, but for me, it really does begin with Elias Pettersson, right? Three more points last night, an absolute snipe on the power play past uh, Jacob Markstrom from, you know, that one-timer spot that we have seen be so dangerous in the past, the shorthanded goal uh, that you described earlier. And you just start to look at his counting stats, right? That's 10 points in his last four games, 13 in his last seven, 20 in his last 16. You know, this is an extended run of extremely high-end production for Elias Pettersson. And this is really the kind of run, again, just from a accounting stats perspective, you know, all of a sudden he, he could take a run at 70 points this year, right? And if he keeps up this kind of play for the remainder of the season, there's a chance we look back at the end of the year and all of a sudden our perspective on the kind of season he's had is very, very different if he's able to finish this strong. But beyond just the counting stats and the production, I thought the the total package was really on display for Elias Pettersson, right? It was the shot from the power play, the playmaking, because I thought his line with Hoaglander and, and Pod Colson, even in the first period when the, the game was still in doubt, that line was dangerous. They were creating chances. He was driving play at anything strength, and then he uses his hockey sense to impact the game defensively and get that shorthanded goal. That, you know, people have asked us a lot this year, Drancer, when we were kind of defending Pedersen in the depths of his slump, you know, what do you see here that makes you think he can be a franchise player, that makes you think he can be an elite first-line player? And for me, it was all on display last night, right? Those are the things. Everything we saw last night is what gives me confidence that he can be that type of player. Well, the play driving is back. I mean, in terms of what... In terms of how they're controlling play, the Canucks' 5-on-5 game has been trending a little bit in the wrong direction of late. And over the last 10 games, the club's been outchanced. So out, in terms of scoring chances for versus against, the Canucks have been outchanced by 32 over 10 games. Um, Pedersen is the only skater at 5-on-5 who's in the black by scoring chance differential. That tells you a ton. That tells you a ton about how valuable he's been. Um his game is back entirely. And and for all of that, I still think there's another level because his five-on-five scoring has is back, but it's not back the way you'd think it might be in the event that he, um, you know, really gets back to the level that he's been at in the past. Um, not, not to criticize his last 10 games where he's been scoring in bunches, I guess, multi-point games in, what, the last three? Four, four in a row. I four mean, in a row. Yeah. Incredible. But the... Fact is, is that over the last 10 games, he has six even strength points. Yuho Lamico has five. So as good as Pedersen's been... Shout you out Yuho Lamico. Shout out Yuho Lamico. He's been playing amazing. <laughs> you know, when you have a one-two punch like that down the middle, <laughs> um, you know, so I still think there's another level he can get to, but his play driving is back. The shot on the power play is back. 
And the goals he's scoring aren't just goals anymore. They're just like, what? What? How? No. You know, like that. the goal that he scored on the power play to open the scoring, who's going to stop that? Who's going to, like, I mean, forget a postage stamp. He put a postage stamp on a postage stamp. It was dead corner. Could not place it better than that. And then the second goal was just overpowering, lethal. Nothing lucky about it. Um, the type of unscreened rush wrist shot that is a no-doubter. I, I Honestly, I run out of superlatives for it. It is when he is on his game, when he is on his game, he is just a technician. And it's a pleasure. Like, it's just a pleasure to watch him work. There is a perfection in the mechanics and in the movement and in the precision that is really rare. Like, I, I, I struggle to think of analogs around the league like Steven Stamkos's one-timer comes to mind for me but I, I really struggle to think of a marksman of Pedersen's quality that I've seen um, in the NHL in the last decade decade and a half and and when you consider that we didn't see it for so much of the season and now we're seeing it on an every night basis uh, you know that's a huge development for this team I mean we talked about it a lot in the first half like what what mattered in the second half Pedersen Pedersen, Pedersen finding his game, he's found that game. And that is a huge development in terms of what this club needs, how close they are, how quickly you can assemble a team around now, a team where you've got this emerging guy who's had his first year as a starting goaltender and aced the test, right? Like there is no 110%. He even got the bonus question. He showed up and got extra credit from uh, from Professor Kirk for, for imi- imitating his... Um, well, first of all, the windmill saves, but also the gear. Uh, you've got this 1D who's rebounded defensively in Quinn Hughes and is back to being this gravity-altering play-driving force from the back end, not to mention one of the NHL's premier uh, power play quarterbacks. And then you've got this 1C who's one of the best shooters I've ever seen. Like, honestly, one of the, one of the most unique shooters I've ever seen. And, you know, you put that together, those are like good tent poles to have. Really good temples. Throw in a throw in a really good two C in in Bo Horvat. Fantastic. You have to be able to build a really good team around that in two years. Um, and you know, I don't think you necessarily need to significantly dismantle this team before the deadline in order to achieve that. But you do need to shed cap space. You do need to reset the books because I do still think the supporting cast on this group is too limited. And and I think if you don't do it before the deadline, I, I just I wonder if it's too much. Like I wonder if it's too much work. I, I kind of think the process has to begin um to, to to reset the books here. Like to pull money out of your defense core, to shed some inefficient money, to clear up the space you need, the avenues to improve that we keep talking about. I do think some of that has to happen before the deadline, but you know, winning four or five the way this team has, right? Um, they, I, you know, it's hard to say they haven't bought themselves another week or two, right? I, I, I do think, I do think Boudreaux has certainly succeeded in his task of making Jim Rutherford's decisions as hard as he could. Well, and I wanted, so just we talked about Elias Patterson, right? And how that kind of game shows you 
the upside and gives you the confidence that he can be that tentpole that you talk about. And I will say, I mean, just as as a hockey fan and someone who just enjoys watching great players, my my mind kind of does start to wonder to, you know, what could his next season look like, right? Like that'll be his age 24 season next year, fifth season in the league. If he's able to bring this kind of confidence and this kind of performance over an extended campaign, I mean, we could see that kind of true jump to the next level. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but Again, that does have implications for how the Canucks approach some of these big decisions they're making because now you can start to have some of that confidence that, oh, okay, we have those three absolute core tentpole foundation pieces in Pedersen, Quinn Hughes, and Demko who are ready to be at the top of their games right now, who are elite players for us right now in this very instance. And again, that was one of the big takeaways for me last night. So we talked about Demko. We talked about Pedersen. Obviously, Bo Horvat had a big night with two goals. Quinn Hughes picked up a couple of assists. Wasn't the flashiest night for him, but he was contributing on the power play. Brock Besser gets a couple of assists. JT Miller, obviously there are questions about his long-term future, but he had another fantastic night. And again, it kind of shows you why there would be some reluctance to fully dismantle this team, or at least those players who you could say are the high end of the roster, because they all demonstrated those kind of high-end attributes that make them value valuable. And it, it's, again, the kind of... the When you start to think about what should the timeline for this team be, you understand why Jim Rutherford is kind of looking more at the, the medium-term turnaround than the long-term, because there are legitimate pieces that are kind of game-breaking talent or that have that game-breaking ability. And those are hard to find. So yeah. I, I do understand... And in premium the, positions, ex- right? Exactly. And I do understand the reluctance... As much as I have been, you know, kind of supportive of the idea of cashing in on JT Miller when his value is highest, I also understand why you would be Jim Rutherford and say, man, that's five or six really good players we have here. Like, maybe at least let's explore the other avenues before we start shipping those guys out. I get it when you see that last night. I get it. I get it to an extent. I'm not sure that's where I would land ultimately, but I also understand the push and pull that you're seeing. It's just too bad because you'd love to find other ways... Like, you don't want to trade good players to carve out cap space, but the Canucks probably can't carve out cap space without trading their good players. And without cap space, they're stuck. They're just stuck being what they are. And, yeah, you know, they've been a top 10 team with Boudreaux as coach by by the results. But, you know, and, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday with Calgary, right? And one thing I want to note is when Calgary fired Jeff Ward and brought in Daryl Sutter, the team's profile altered. I don't think people remember just how bad the Flames were last season. They finished two points ahead of the Canucks. Yeah, it was a dreadful season. A dread. They were awful. And so they make the coaching change in season and had kind of the opposite of what we've seen in Vancouver. In Vancouver, we've seen the team reel off a ton of wins. And we talked about this a little bit after the coaching change happened, right? When you bring in a coach who's a player's coach and who's, you know, uh, such a good guy that guys really like him and want to play hard for him, Boudreaux's like the template for this coach. Um, you're more likely to get the bounce than you are when you bring in the disciplined taskmaster type, the Daryl Sutter type. And that's played out, right? The Canucks have done nothing but win, it feels like, sometimes, uh, even though that's not quite true. But 680-plus point percentage since they made the coaching change. The Flames didn't get that bounce. They lost a ton under Sutter and, and sort of faded results-wise toward the end of the season. But if you looked at their underlying form... They had become an elite play-driving team under Sutter immediately, almost immediately. He completely changed the way that they looked in terms of 
the predictive metrics that I sort of rate above record because record is super, don't don't get me wrong the scoreboard matters the yes, most yes. the most record matters the most but wins in the present don't promise wins in the future form in the present tends to result in wins in the, down the line and and what I'm always looking at is is ahead I'm a big picture guy I'm looking at what matters down the line and I know that can be tough for fans fans want media sometimes to reflect their anger after losses and sometimes they want media to share in a celebration with them after wins and I'm just not wired that way like I'm wired to be focused on where this team is at and what's next what's coming down the pipe what do they need to get to the level that we all hope they get to and so with Calgary you had this run of losses but this run of good form and in the offseason I expected them to contend with the Vegas Golden Knights to be one of the best teams in the Pacific, and that's how it's played out. With the Canucks, they're now on this like feel-good run, but again, the special team's still a problem, right? The five-on-five game's still middling, albeit propped up by far more favorable percentages uh, than the club enjoyed in the first 25 games of the year. They haven't fixed what they are to me. It's a mid-range five-on-five team that with elite goaltending, and if they could ever get their special teams to a point, would be a fringe playoff team. But their their ceiling, like what we expect of them of them, hasn't changed, even though their results have popped off to to almost an elite rate. Um, what goes on? What what happens as that sample expands? I'm not picking the Canucks as a team that's fixed or like a team to watch out for. They they're way better than you think. I, I'm looking at them as a team that's unlikely to sustain the win, winning percentage they've managed under Boudreaux so far over the balance and in the next season. And that's a team that you have to be very careful about betting on. Like, if the organization were to, at this point, say, what the players in Boudreaux have shown has earned them the right to go for us to go past the deadline, we're not going to trade Tyler Mott, we're not going to find ways to carve out cap flexibility, um, and in the offseason be like, we're close because of what we did in the second half, I would say that's a grave error. Like, that's a setback for this organization. And that's very different from how I felt about Calgary, where a lot of the chatter locally in that market following last season's disappointment was, is it time to give up on the core? And I thought, boy, that team is going to be a lot better next season if they just stand pat. Like, if if they just do nothing, they'll be fine. Um, they ended up doing more than that. But... Got Blake Coleman, among <laughs> others, yeah. They, they made some savvy moves, but... Um, there's a very distinct profile difference here, and it's not me wanting bad things for the team to suggest this. If if the team had been fundamentally different under Boudreaux and the results weren't there, I'd be the guy in the market saying, don't worry about this team. They're actually fixed. I don't see that. I see a winning team that's not fixed, and that concerns me most because in the with a month leading up to the deadline – you worry about an organization that loves to take shortcuts reacting far too much to a run of good form um, that isn't necessarily matched with a newfound core of steel in terms of their spine and process. Uh, Rocket in Vancouver, Texan. I think we have a fine core, much like Calgary, who did nothing the last three to five years. What Calgary did was surround their core players uh, with the heavy lifting players, so to speak. That could be done here in Vancouver. It's not our top six. It's our bottom six that needs retooling. And obviously the defense needs a little help as well. And in general, a little, I think, yeah, but I, (laughs) I do think the kind of 
the weird thing about Vancouver is so often well, when Calgary teams also are, needed a goalie and they had and the Canucks have one. Yeah. That's a huge feather. When the team when when cap. a team is kind of stuck in that mushy middle, typically in the NHL the problem is you don't have the high end talent. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the kind of weird things to wrap your head around with the Canucks is they've I don't want to say they've got the top of the roster all figured out. Obviously, you can always add, add more excellent game-breaking players, but they have those high-end players that teams covet so much. It is the bottom of the roster that needs retooling, and then you kind of hear that, and you think, well, why are people saying trade G- JT Miller? And the problem is it's hard to see the path towards adding that talent at the bottom of the roster without clearing up cap space, without acquiring other assets, which leads you down the road of trading a player like JT Miller. But I do understand the fans' perspective when you look at it and say, well, hey, they've got these star players. Instead of trying to move them out, can't you just kind of tool farther down the roster? The problem is with some of the salary cap bets the Canucks have made in the past that haven't worked out, it becomes really, really hard, uh, really, really hard to do that without also moving some of those high-end players. But it is kind of an interesting roster-building puzzle that the Canucks find themselves in when you both need to add talent, but you also have this impressive high-end core of talent already in place that's, you know, getting you a certain amount of results already. Uh, Lots of thoughts coming in about Elias Pettersson, the win last night, the direction forward for this team. We will read a bunch of them on the other side. Uh, Also, as a reminder, make sure you subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more coming up on the other side. It's the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here you for another half hour on a Friday, a feel-good Friday edition of the show after the 7-1 beatdown. The Canucks hung on the Calgary Flames last night at Rogers Arena. They looked good doing it, too, in their black skate jerseys. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. And, uh, Drancer, we were singing the praises of Elias Pettersson. I had a blast watching him last night. He has been on fire, producing, driving play, looking like the old Petey with the swagger, the playmaking, the shot, all of it recently. But believe it or not, some people in the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber text line are not on board. They are still waiting to see more from Elias Pettersson. This one comes in unsigned. Guys, take a breath. Skinny Pete is still just a power play guy. His skating is still weak. Your hyperbole is way over the top. Another one, unsigned. How much does EP40 pay you to say these lies about him? He's been lucky at best. Not enough. Did you? Yeah, right? Did you watch the first period yesterday? He was horrible as usual, falling down, losing board battles, getting passes picked off, etc. And then he says, if he's that good, if he's as good as you say, why not trade him? Wouldn't that be better for the team? I don't know what people want. He was the best. Look, it's easy to forget, or, you know, you look at the score and you think, I oh, was a blowout, it was a laugher. That first period was competitive, well-played, fast-paced, tight. Elias Pettersson was the best player on the ice for the Canucks. He was driving play. He was creating chances for his line mates. He was doing everything you asked him. The puck didn't go in the, in the back in the net in that period. But other than that, he had a really strong first period. So I'm kind of confused at this point 
maybe these maybe there's just holdouts that will never be convinced right even if Elias Pettersson goes on to win a Hart trophy they'll still be demanding more I guess that happened with the Sedin twins to a certain extent so maybe it'll happen again here but I'm kind of confused about what it's going to take to get people to finally admit that Elias Pettersson is back and playing at elite level like if that if that game last night didn't do it I'm not exactly sure what we're waiting for here Uh, me neither (laughs) me neither he's really good it's fine just enjoy it. Yeah. Don't worry. Enjoy it. He's he's good. Yeah. He's worth the price of admission. Like, it is what it is. And, you know, bet on good players. Bet on good players is a rule of mine. Not, not just in terms of how I analyze the game, but in particular how I cover players that are struggling. Right? If you're very good and if you've had a lot of success... At the NHL level and in previous levels, but especially at the NHL level, because young players take time. But if you come in and you crush it at 19 or 20, the way Besser did, the way Hughes did, the way Pedersen did, right? If if you're a goalie like Demko, for example, who crushed it at every level on the way up, like those are the types of players that I tend to bet on. Now, I'm a little bit more loath to bet on goaltenders until they've played a ton of minutes just because I don't really understand goaltending to be totally honest with you I'm not Kevin Woodley like I I don't I don't really I can't really tell the difference in minor tactics or you know sometimes I'll be like I don't know if that's the right save selection and I'll yell down press row Kevin I don't think that was the right time to be in reverse VH am I right and he's like good job Tom pat you on the head like well done but uh but you know I don't know that stuff so goaltenders goaltending is the is the most unpredictable part of the game for me I don't pretend to know it but bet on good players. Even when they're struggling, they tend to bounce back. I mean, look at the look at the Horvat criticism over the course of the past week. It was scintillating last night. Like he was incredible. He's really good. He's a really good player. The Canucks have some really good players. Uh, the the key is now how do you build a really good team around them? And I don't. I, I just don't see a way forward without subtracting. Unfortunately, from the top end, and and in particular, the Canucks have a surplus of highly paid, highly skilled wingers who probably have some trade value, and and that's why the focus has been on those players, because any objective observer coming in, which is basically what Rutherford and Alvin and Cami Granato and Emily Castongay and Derek Clancy and all the new faces that the Canucks have hired and brought in, they would look up and down this roster. They would look at the cap situation. They would look at the prospect system. They would look at the lack of draft capital. And they would say, look, like we have a lot of needs. Right? Anyone rational would come in and say that. And one thing that I worry about a little bit in talking about this team is I do feel like sometimes the Vancouver market discusses this team in a vacuum without paying attention to the rest of the league. And I know, I know people in the inbox and people on Twitter get mad at me for always bringing up my hobby horse favorite favorite in scare quote teams but it's because I watch a lot of hockey right like I watch a lot of hockey I'm not comparing the Canucks to themselves right this conversation about what this team should do should not exist in isolation because the Canucks do not compete in isolation they are not the sole protagonist in a story about the Vancouver Canucks even though that's how we as media and, and fans to experience them right they are one of 32 They're one of 32. And beating, being the one of those 32 teams to win a cup, requires a ton of luck, right? It's really hard, but it also requires you to be the most efficient in in every decision you make for a long stretch of time. 
and, and honestly, you have to be excellent for many years to even give yourself a chance, to even give yourself a chance. But at the end of the day, the best teams do win. Like, if you go look at the cap era, right? If you go look at the cap era and look at the teams that won the most games in the regular season, uh, cruel twist of fate, the number one winning percentage team of the cap era, the San Jose Sharks, <laughs> never won a cup. Yep. But every other cup winner save one is in the top 10, right? Every other cup winner, Boston, Pittsburgh, Chicago, LA, like St. Louis, all of the teams that have won cups, top 10. The one outlier is the Carolina Hurricanes. And that's a little bit different because that wasn't a team that spent to the cap. That was a, a non-traditional market. It's just a slightly different story. Um, but you have to win a lot for a long stretch of time and break through eventually. That's just my view of, of, of what you need to do. The Canu- and what the Canucks need to do and what the Canucks need to build. I see a team right now on a heater, driven largely by their goaltending and, and more recently by some of their top offensive guns waking up, namely Elias Pettersson, but it's more than him. And, you know, what I want to see is a team that can sustain year-over-year excellence, the type you require to put yourself in with a bid, with a real shot at bringing glory to this city, the glory that's been long awaited for Canucks fans for 52 years. Uh, lots of people bringing up the uh, the breakaway that Pedersen gave up in the first period. That's true. Yeah, gave up the puck on the power play for, for a short-handed well, breakaway. And he was he was the last man back on the Giordano goal um, the other day. The power play is trending in the wrong direction. Like, I know it had a great game. I liked the look with Miller at the net front. I think... That's been a long time coming. I don't know why it took the club so long. How how long? How many times have we brought that up, Jamie? Yeah, it's been a while to, to get Besser on the, the his one timer spot and like, use Miller in that position instead. And there's a there's just a pretty compelling logic to it. The the one thing I will say about the power play is, and as we talk, continue to talk about Elias Pettersson, the, one of the cliches with great players in sports is you know they make other players around them better, right? They bring the best out of the other players on the team. And I thought we saw that a little bit, or we're seeing that a little bit with Pod Colson and Hoaglander, right? Who looked extremely dangerous with Pedersen at even strength. But I think the power play is an example of that as well, because all of a sudden when Elias Pedersen starts to click with that one-timer and turns that into a very, very threatening weapon, and teams have to really worry uh, about taking that option away, it opens other things up for the Canucks. and Including passing lanes, by the way, the 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 goal that was it Horvat who Besser basically shot it into his no it was Miller. so it was so what happened I was going to bring up that play yeah. right Pedersen won't get an assist on it but that play starts by him making a, a cross ice pass to Brock Besser sends it down it goes off Miller's skate and bounces to Horvat and again that doesn't show up on the on the score sheet for Elias Pedersen but one it's a it's a creative sharp play by him and you're right it's opened up because teams are more concerned with the threat of his one-timer and the threat of his shot. They're just more worried about Elias Pettersson in general, and that kind of lifts what everyone else uh, on the power play unit is able to do. So I, I think the power play, the get, it, getting set up is still a problem uh, for certain times. When they were able to get set up last mm-hmm. night, it looked much more dangerous, and I do think a big part of that is Elias Pettersson having that confidence back and other teams having to really account for the threat he poses, and that just makes it so much easier for the other four guys who are out there. 100%. No, I, I, for sure. And and I think having a righty there, too, opens up a quick release, like a quicker release from Pedersen's cross-seam pass. And, and the way that teams will cheat on Pedersen in terms of the gravity that he exerts, right? When, as 
It's like it's like three-point shooters in basketball. Spacing is everything in basketball these days, which is why everyone goes small. And, you know, do you, like, do you know that every team in the NBA now shoots more threes than the three, uh, seven seconds or less Suns yes. did? That was just 10 years ago. Now they would be like a, a retrograde, old-school, don't-shoot-enough-threes don't team. Uh, when Pedersen's shot is established, it gives... There, there's a sense of gravity that that creates in terms of how defenders pay attention to it, and that opens things up, including including that pass to Besser that we saw. Like we saw that in action. That that play is actually set up by Pedersen's first period goal, right? Um, as Pedersen's shot heats up, you will see more actions available to the Canucks on that crossing pass. And if you make that crossing pass quickly, Besser has a good shot, right? A good shooting option, uh, but also. If you pull defenders back that way again, Bo Horvat's going to be open or more likely to be open, especially if he can find the uh, space, like the soft area of the coverage, which he's actually really, really good at. And you're going to have Quinn Hughes up top, too, for one of those little um, one of those little passes that Quinn Hughes can one time or send it back over send to Pedersen, Pedersen. And then you've sent the goalie both ways. And good luck. Good luck. Good luck being a goalie who's not just not set, but who has been set a con unset moved across the crease and is then moving back to try and stop a Pedersen one-timer. This team should have an elite power play, period, with the personnel they have. And they're going to figure it out. But I do think we need to see Besser given a long stretch at the flank, particularly considering the qualifying offer situation, the fact that there's a decision to be made, the fact that his name is, once again, in trade rumors. It's almost boring at this point for Besser to be linked in trade. Well, he was asked about it this week, and you could kind of just get the sense, oh, this is old hat for me. Yeah, like this. Yeah, I've been through this. I've been through this. It it is what it is. I'm not focusing on it. It didn't. I'm sure it's not fun, but he he seems like somebody who has has been through this all before and wasn't letting it get to him that much. Uh, I've I mean I've talked to him about it many times, and to the point where the uh, the last time I did it was in Pittsburgh when his name first cropped up in trade rumors in the fall, and I said to him, Besser, I got to do it again. (laughs) <laughs> I said Brock. I didn't call him Besser. And he uh, and he kind of just like rolled his eyes and he was like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this again? Yeah. So, you know, it's, yeah, it is old hat. But you got you to gotta give that guy a long stretch. I, I do think Pedersen, Besser, Hughes up top is the lesson. Like, I think that is the linchpin of what should be like Capitals West for five years the next five years the Canucks should be Capitals West five on four maybe not quite as good as Edmonton Edmonton's better than the Capitals which is why I'm not calling them Capitals West that's a different animal but Capitals West like a consistently great power play uh with those three up top for the next five years and and I think if the organization makes any type of significant decision on Besser's future without seeing that again for 30 games it would be a massive error like a massive error on the scale of Considering a, a deal involving Niels Hoaglander. Like, come on, stop it. Stop it. Those are bad ideas. Those are those are not the changes I'm advocating for. Um, I, I, I need to see Besser do it. I think he's great up there. I think there's chemistry, real chemistry, with uh, Pedersen and Hughes in that spot. And I, I kind of think the club has run too much through JT Miller, which is not to say that JT Miller is not a, an astoundingly effective power play piece and a tremendous quarterback from his downhill side. It's just that I think that those three need to be the straw that stirs the drink, and and JT Miller can slot in ever ever anywhere else, and and ideally, ideally force them out of position. Like I loved seeing Miller and Besser both 
play the flank and both play the net front last night. I'd like to see more of that. We'll I'd, have that flexibility. I, I, I'd like to see Pedersen play some in the bumper. I'd like to see Pedersen play some at the net front. Like, the flexibility, the ability to rotate, like, that's that's the ingredient. I, I, I don't understand why a group this talented hasn't been able to sustain what we saw from them in 2019-20. Maybe not to that extent, but but something approximating it. Um, and, and as good as last night was, I didn't think the power play was that sharp. I just thought they converted. So, you know, having Pedersen back on his game, having that shot, you know, find the net, having that confidence and swagger back with Pedersen, maybe that's step one. But as, as people mentioned, that breakaway, the Giordano goal against, like this team does need to be better not giving up chances shorthanded. They do need to spend more time in zone. They need to get to a point where whether they score or not, the power plays at least generating momentum and a threat and is offsetting the way that bigger, heavier teams might come in and, and try to run around a little bit against this Canucks team, which is a little bit light, right? I mean, they're a little bit light. And the best way to offset that is to have teams come in and be like, all oh, right, we have we can't take penalties. No, no stick work, no after the whistle shenanigans, like we have to play a disciplined game tonight. That that's their best option, particularly with the personnel they have. And like so much else with this team, last night again, what it says to me is that it begins with Elias Pettersson being at his best, right? That is, if they are going to have that kind of identity as a power play team and have that kind of performance, he has to be sharp. He has to be putting that fear into the other team, into the other team's penalty killer, so it opens up other options for the Canucks. Uh, final few minutes before the weekend here. Uh, Canucks heading out east, travel day for the team, four-game road trip, beginning with the Rangers on Sunday, facing uh, the red-hot Igor Shosturkin, who's trying to trying to barge into the Hart conversation, not just the Vesna conversation. Then you've got the Devils, the Islanders, and the Leafs next Saturday. So four games on the road, but three of those games in the New York metro area, so lighter on travel than your typical four-game road trip for the team. Drancer, what are you looking out for, keeping an eye on, on this road trip for the Canucks? The, I mean, the story now, I think, is the organization, the story now from my perspective for the Canucks, right, is can the club convince the organization not to move significant players? Right, that that's the story. The the story of the next month. For me, the playoff race is still a little bit far afield. Right, we're talking about a team with ten percent playoff odds, according to Dom Decision. Now, granted, they increased their playoff odds by three percent last night, so a big night for them. You need probably six points from the next eight, so three wins on this upcoming road trip to kind of keep that level, maybe go up to 12 or 13%, which speaks to how hard it's going to be to move the needle here, right? Like the Canucks need to keep winning and keep winning at an astounding rate. As Boudreaux put it yesterday, right? 20 of their next 30. That's that's the test ahead for this team. Um, it's a tall, tall order. A tall, tall order. But can the Canucks do well enough Prior to the deadline, and and by the way, right after the deadline, the schedule becomes brutal. They have a really tough seven-game stretch, which, of of course, most Canucks thing ever. (laughs) But can this organization or can this team play well enough that an always or a habitually impatient organization 
decides they want to try and make it. Right. That that to me is the whole story. Everything that goes on about the Canucks is going to be about that, is going to filter through that. And so you're playing the Rangers on the second leg of a back to back. You may not play Shesterkin on Sunday. That would be a huge break. Then you play the Devils, you're on a back to back. That's gonna be a tough game, even though you should beat the Devils. Um Devils have some really interesting players. Obviously close trade links. I'd watch some of the guys in New in New Jersey pretty closely. Uh Jesper Bratt. Uh, is a pending RFA with a really good arbitration case. It's kind of a Brock Besser light situation. Uh, Damon Severson. Uh, I'd watch some of those players closely, see what you think. Um, that would be the other thing that I'd watch out for on Monday. And then the Islanders, you know, that's not an easy game. We saw that when the Islanders came to town just two weeks ago. And then the Toronto Maple Leafs, I mean, that's also not an easy game. And, and we saw that when the Canucks defeated them two weeks ago, but the Leafs kind of throttled them on the scoreboard. And who knows, that could be a very new-look Leafs team with their newfound LTI space. So, uh, you know, I'm looking for, can the Canucks do enough that their position as a seller is thrown into any further doubt uh, in the weeks leading up to the trade deadline? For me, that involves three wins at minimum. I think that's, that's going to be a tall order. If you said bet five and a half points for the Canucks on this road trip, I'd probably take the under considering how it shapes up. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be very fascinating to watch, particularly because there's new management, but also the organization doesn't change its stripes overnight. And I wonder if the, even internally, if it's less about, as you said, kind of pushing for the playoffs this season and more about take, if the team continues to perform well and has a really successful road trip here, if you start to kind of take a step back and say, again, internally even, okay, maybe we don't make the playoffs this year, but do we need to kind of reconsider parting with some of the more high profile pieces and then at least try to explore? Because we've had lots of people text in like, hey, can you move? Myers, can you move Pearson? Can you move Dickinson? All of these other names, right? And for me, the kind of assumption for so long has been not without taking money back, right? And I, I understand. I think again, that's a good assumption. You know, if you if there is ever a way to get off that money and that prevents you from moving some of the more effective players, I completely understand the allure of that route. But I I also just don't know how possible it's going to be. But I do wonder if, at the very least, a strong performance here doesn't doesn't maybe stop you from selling a guy like Tyler Mott, but if it makes the front office kind of take a step back and say, you know what, we're going to give ourselves some time. We're Instead of having three weeks before we have to make the decisions here, before the deadline, we're going to kick the can a little bit down the road and maybe, you know, have a few months leading into the draft, into the offseason to kind of think about it, right? To, before we do start to move out, for example, a JT Miller or a Brock Besser. That, to me, is more what I'm kind of watching and wondering about than whether or not they can they can kind of get back in the playoff race, right? And, it, it, you know, the two are dovetailed together, obviously, because you have those strong performances. You also might climb back into the playoff race. But I think it's even more interesting from what it might do to the front office's perspective and the front office's strategy going forward. Yeah, 100%. I, th- I think you're right. And the, yeah, it's going to be, the, there's just always going to be a tension. In the, it, until we see this organization make moves with the long view in mind. There's always going to be a tension between our expectations of how a team should function when they're 90% likely to miss the playoffs and how the Canucks tend to function. And I think we're going to see that tension increase, especially in the event that the Canucks can continue their form on the road, which is why their performance 
over this weekend and uh, and leading through next week is going to be so fascinating and so high stakes in some ways in charting a future course. It, it's going to be a constant source of speculation until we see the first major move from this front office, mm-hmm. which we're all still waiting for with with bated breath, right? But it's it's going to be a fascinating talking point until we finally have some real concrete clarity on exactly what Jim Rutherford, Patrick Alvin, and company are thinking. All right, that's going to do it for us today for this week as well. We will be back on Monday. Enjoy the week. Enjoy the game on Sunday. The People's Show with myself and Randy Bjanda is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.